Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Shoulder Sig podcast. The aims of this podcast are to draw upon experts' knowledge to improve the physical therapy management of shoulder conditions, particularly related to the athlete. The management of shoulder injuries is complex, and we seek to provide the clinician with some tools to help them simplify their practice. Welcome again to Episode 5. My name is AJ Johnson, a current sports physical therapy resident at the Mayo Clinic. During today's episode, we will be discussing shoulder rehab after tendon transfer for rotator cuff repair with our featured guest, Dr. Allison Mumblow. Allison is a physical therapist and sport clinical specialist who underwent residency training through ProAxis Physical Therapy, which is now currently known as ATI. She currently works at Mayo Clinic Orthopedics and Sports Medicine at Mayo Clinic Square in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her professional accomplishments are vast, but of note, she is the instructor for the physical therapy doctoral program at the Mayo Clinic Physical Therapy Program. She also, she also serves on faculty and as a mentor for the sports and orthopedic residencies at the Mayo Clinic. Lastly, she is also the vice president of the Duke University Physical Therapy Alumni Association. It is with great pleasure that I get to introduce Allison Mumblow onto the podcast. Welcome, Allison. Thank you, AJ. My pleasure. How's the, how's the day been going so far for you? It's been good. Thank you. We're um, anticipating some warmer weather here in Minnesota, so um, I think we're all excited about that, seeing some blue skies and, um, yeah, feeling the warmth of the sunshine. Yeah, definitely feeling the warmth and getting rid of the, all those snow piles. That's right. So as we talk a little bit about tendon transfer rehab, when I was doing some research onto it, it was not a topic that I had really been accustomed to or, or really heard of. Um, if you could summarize specifically what tendon transfer is, and then also what are the typical patients that you're seeing undergo these tendon transfers? Yes, absolutely. Great questions. Um, the Tendon transfer procedure was originally designed to restore particular movement in patients with paralysis due to injury. And over time, this has evolved uh, into one surgical option for patients with irreparable rotator cuff tears. Um, when we talk about irreparable rotator, rotator cuff tears, we think of a few things, uh, two or more tendons, uh, tear that's retracted and shortened to the level of the glenoid and or a tear with fatty infiltration of the muscle belly. We know that rotator cuff repairs in the setting of those things uh, often fail. And so this procedure was designed to address irreparable rotator cuff tears, um, particularly in patients who are younger, and that can be either physiologically or physically, uh, if we look at systematic reviews, the average age is about 55 to 60 years old. Um, so younger patients and or physically active patients. And what's important to note too, is it's designed for patients without significant glenohumeral osteoarthritis as the procedure wouldn't address um, that component. Um, so in addition, we're looking at patients with symptomatic um, shoulders and also those with functional deficits. So the procedure is designed to restore um, function, to improve pain and improve strength um, in, in those patients. Historically, it's been performed with two open in, in, incisions, 
one posteriorly and one anteriorly. Um, the muscle is then released from its proximal attachment point and reattached into the footprint of the uh, rotator cuff tear. One of the one of the interesting things as you as you were talking there, Allison, is this concept, at least to myself, that this is a surgery that's utilized more in the younger, more active population, um, which to me was interesting as it's more reserved for these irreparable um, rotator cuff repairs. So I just thought that was an interesting point. And then talking to to your uh, discussion about the open procedures, it almost sounds like the the traditional method was utilization of that latissimus dorsi muscle. Can you speak a little bit about what are the typical um, muscles that are involved um, that you're alluding to with cutting off of their attachment and then reattaching to the rotator cuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we go there, I think one important thing to understand um, in regards to the procedure is the exact goal of the procedure and in understanding the goal of the procedure and having a better understanding of the procedure as a whole, that will make more sense in terms of what tendons are transferred for the procedure. So really, you know, the first important thing to understand is that normal rotator cuff function is to stabilize um, the glenohumeral joint um, and also allow movement at the glenohumeral joint. And then with that, a disruption of that normal force couple will cause abnormal kinematics. And so that is what we're trying to restore with this tendon, <clears throat> excuse me, tendon transfer procedure. So the goal is to restore joint kinematics by restoring the force couple across the joint and then allowing near normal shoulder mechanics to be restored. So in understanding that, uh, the surgeon will select the tendon to transfer based on the location of that tendon. And what we're trying to do is create similar lines of pull. Um, and so for example, as you mentioned, the latissimus dorsi historically has been the primary or the most commonly tendon transferred for posterior superior uh, irreparable cuff tears. Uh, in addition, for posterior superior tears, uh, the lower trapezius can be used as well as the teres major. For anterior superior tears, so tears of the subscapularis, most commonly used are either pectoralis major or again, the latissimus dorsi. Thank you for that, Allison. Um, I agree. I think it's vastly important for the rehab clinician to understand what the goals of the procedure are, because then we can provide that education to the patient. And I know one of the things that I've been working through is the management of the patient expectations as they come in post-operatively, or even if you see this patient pre-operatively. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the differences in your patient expectations management and some of the education pieces that you provide um, this patient after tendon transfer repair as compared to a traditional rotator cuff repair? Yes, absolutely. And I think that setting expectations preoperatively <clears throat> or early postoperatively is imperative in the successful rehabilitation of these patients. Um, I think broadly, one of the most important things for them un to understand is that they should not expect an outcome of normal function or complete pain relief. Uh, the goals with this procedure are that they achieve significant improvements in their pain, in their range of motion, and in their functional outcome scores. And more specifically, if we look at strength restoration, 
Um, over time, we expect these patients will achieve approximately 75 to 80% strength of their uninvolved side. When we look at functional improvements, so those measured by patient reported outcomes, we expect our patients to achieve a 50 to 70% improvement um, at the one year post-operative mark. And that's just up to one year. What's also important for our patients to understand is that optimal recovery can take greater than one year. Um, and while as physical therapists, we might not be seeing them over a year post-operative, it's important for them to understand that gains can be achieved for longer than just the course of our post-operative care. I think another thing to appreciate as a clinician, um, when we're trying to put ourselves in the perspective of the patient is a lot of times the patients that we're seeing after this procedure are patients who have had quite a history um, of shoulder dysfunction. So they have had, they may have had multiple shoulder surgeries um, and failed surgical procedures, which is what led them here. Um, and so just understanding and appreciating kind of where the patient's coming from, what they've been through, I think can help us be more successful um, in working with the patient through their post-operative rehabilitation. Thank you for that point, Allison. And I couldn't agree more is that management of those expectations early on is vastly important, as well as tying into that last point you alluded to of listening to their story, because as we know, that therapeutic alliance is so important. And there was just a recent um, article that came out for those undergoing ACL repair and their satisfaction. And one of the highest rated things was their relationship with that therapist, because you are going to be going through such a long period of time for that patient routinely checking in with them. So we have that innate ability to follow along with them along their journey. And I think that's exactly what you kind of alluded to. And that's so important. That's exactly right. In in all aspects of physical therapy, we know that that therapeutic alliance uh, is so important and there's evidence to support that. And I do think that for patients that have unfortunately had a longer course um, and maybe some less successful runs at physical therapy or you know, from the surgical procedure, it's that much more important to kind of um, discuss those things and be very clear about expectations for this episode of care. Oh, and I, and I think as the listeners who have listened to these podcasts in the past have kind of picked up one of the things that I wanted to talk about is these patient expectations is because they are so important. Um, along the lines of the patient expectations is that kind of typical recovery timeline. So when you talk to your patients and you kind of think as a clinician, here's how we're going to get this person from off of the operating table to their optimal function. How are you kind of laying out that plan and that framework with inside your head as well? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the first few visits that we see each other, we want to, just like you're describing, kind of lay out big picture what their postoperative care will look like. And so it's just starting by outlining the different phases so they can understand, first of all, that there's a systematic and intentional approach to our postoperative rehabilitation. And of course, our progress through those phases will be based on both timeframes for physiologic healing as well as their functional status. So understanding that we're gonna balance those two. So kind of outlining the different phases for them 
and also estimated time frames for each of those phases. And of course, as physical therapists, we know um, that things aren't always that black and white in postoperative rehabilitation, and their progression might not adhere exactly to the number of weeks that are listed on the postoperative protocol for a certain phase. But it certainly is helpful for the patient to have a general understanding of what they can expect at week one postoperative, at week four postoperative, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so starting by outlining the different phases um, and then the expected number of weeks that they can anticipate for each of those phases. So after this procedure, and now when I talk about this procedure, I'm kind of talking broadly about tendon transfer procedures in general. As we've already discussed, there are different tendon transfers that can occur. And of course, there'll be some nuances with each of those different um, tendons in terms of the specifics of the postoperative protocol, which we can certainly dive more into if you'd like. But right now I'm talking more broadly for a tendon transfer procedure in general. So we divide it into four postoperative phases. Typically, uh, the first phase is primarily um, protecting their shoulder and letting it heal. Um, so kind of maximal protection in that phase. And this is where we'll really lean into our operating surgeons for their recommendations based on that specific patient and their specific um, surgical procedure. But phase one, we typically call maximal protection. And that's typically from zero to six weeks. Um, and then depending on our, uh, our surgeon and their specific protocol, they might allow some passive range of motion in those first six weeks, and they might not. It might be a completely quiet phase. During that phase, these patients are in a custom brace, which is different than what we would typically see um, the sling with the abduction pillow for our ro rotator cuff repair patients. This custom made brace, um, they're kind of locked in a position with their arm at their side in, the, in a bit of abduction and external rotation. Um, well, I guess I'm speaking now specifically for lat transfers. Um, so in a position where uh, the muscle is off tensioned um, and they're locked in that typically for the first six weeks during that quiet phase. And then as we move into phase two, that's typically when we start transitioning into some active range of motion. Um, and that's typically the next six weeks. So uh, week six through 12 postoperatively. One of the other big goals during that phase when we're allowed to start moving a little bit um, is to retrain the transferred tendon. And that's really one of the keys to rehabilitation in after this procedure versus a rotator cuff repair. And we can certainly talk more about that. And then moving into phase three, um, that is when we're typically allowed to start our strengthening. And generally speaking, that's not before 12 weeks postoperative in this patient population. So goals during this phase are retraining of the transferred, te transferred tendon with active range of motion and improving strength and stability and really thinking about how we can utilize the maximization of that force couple as the patient starts to um, add resistance to their exercises. And then phase four, uh, just like any postoperative procedure may or may not exist for some patients, depending on what their ultimate goals are. For the patient whose goals are primarily to return to activities of daily living, uh, they might've achieved those goals at the end of phase three. Phase four is more advanced strengthening and helping them return to activity. And that's typically um, at weeks 24 and beyond. 
Thank you so much for that systematic um, just approach to physical therapy. And I think with that management, that allows the patient to kind of set their own mile markers, so to speak, as to, okay, I can expect this, I can expect this. Um, but then, like you alluded to, having that expectation at the beginning that as much as we want rehab to be linear trajectory, you can be in multiple phases all at once throughout the rehab care, depending on how you're progressing. And I think you definitely touched on that, which I appreciated. One of the points you brought up was that neuromuscular retraining of these tendons. Um, and I think the listeners can kind of think back to a rotator cuff repair that they've had, who still exhibits a little bit of a shrug sign. Um, in your experience working with these tendon transfer patients, and again, speaking broadly, are there common compensations that you see? And if so, what are some of your big clinical pearls as to how you can kind of correct those things? Great question. I think that one of the things that these patients are most challenged with is patterns, depending on which tendon was transferred. So let's take the lat, for example, into, let's take the lat um, transfer for a posterior superior tear. Um, so, you know, we're relying on that tendon transfer to assist with flexion and external rotation. And that's a new, uh, those are new movements for for that muscle to achieve, you know, the lad isn't used to um, doing those, those movements, assisting with those movements. And it's interesting. Um, if we look at EMG studies, and there are multiple of them that look at these patients postoperatively um, in midterm follow-up. Um, and what they found is that the muscle is still active for its normal function. So for example, in the lat for adduction and internal rotation, but in terms of the rotator cuff function, there's a significant increase in, of muscle activity that is observed with EMG that is a new function of that transferred muscle. And that's just so interesting the way our bodies can do that. Um, and to know that we can expect that that transferred tendon will be able to take on kind of a new function. And so really, I think the biggest challenge um, for patients knowing all of that is to figure out how to use that, how to activate that transfer tendon in those new motions. And so kind of some things um, intervention wise that I commonly use um, with my patients are um, the feed, thinking about the feedback that I'm providing them. So, you know, I'm thinking early phase, they're on the table, probably in a supine or head elevated position, whatever's most comfortable, but we don't have any gravity working against us. And I'm either using my hands as tactile cueing and also to get feedback for myself, but kind of palpating the muscle and asking them to just give me some isometric resistance um, to activate in those new movements. So they're not moving at all yet. It's an isometric, very safe position for them to be in, um, but giving them tactile cueing to find that muscle with those new motions. Uh, a few other things that we use kind of along those similar lines would be biofeedback. Um, probably more common in the lower extremity, um, but using biofeedback, which can pro provide either visual or auditory feedback to re-educate a muscle to function in a new way. And then once they've, um, and another useful um, way to assist them is to potentially provide um, some neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Um, again, the goal would be to assist in muscle recruitment early on. Um, 
Now, my experience has been less so that patients have difficulty turning on the muscle, meaning I don't use the NMES as frequently as I do the different biofeedback um, strategies. They can find the muscle, but coordinating that in the way that we want to use it in the new way, the new movements, that's typically um, their biggest challenge. And so again, I rely heavily on uh, manual techniques. So manual cueing, as well as getting manual feedback, um, using my hands for manual resistance, that way I can modulate how much resistance I'm giving them in different positions, um, in different ranges of motion. It's a, it, those early phases are just so thoughtful from a clinician standpoint. Um, and that, that kind of challenge is one of the things that I really enjoy about working with these patients. You're so thoughtful about your hand position, about their limb position, about what directions you're, you're wanting them to move into um, with, all of, of course, the ultimate goal to restore or to, um, yeah, to restore the normal um, force couple at the shoulder, but in a new way, like we've talked about. No, that's awesome. And I think it, it, exactly what you to allude to, and I haven't had any experience really working with a tendon transfer patient, but it's hard enough that sometimes working on an ACL patient, getting them to stop creating a hamstring co-contraction with quadricep contraction. So I love that idea of utilizing your hands and getting hands-on with that patient because it provides the patient with more of an external cue and an external source of feedback, which we know is more helpful for promoting motor learning longer term. Secondly, exactly what you alluded to as well, that external feedback that you as a clinician get can see at what point in the range of motion is this muscle or coordination, whatever you want to term it, breaking down. And then you can spend more time working on specific interventions to address that arc of motion that might be the most problematic spot for them. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think our hands provide us so much valuable information and working with all of our patients, but especially um, in procedures like this that are complex, but also the nuances of um, restoring function are so important. Um, I, I, yeah, I think our hands are so valuable in that setting. When it comes to, so one of the things that we've talked about through our didactics, and I know you and I have talked about like the post-operative healing and going through the phases of healing um, is, is that setting of your dosage of exercise. Um, how does your thought process regarding like the dosage of how many cycles of a, a passive range or active range during a day, how does that differ from a traditional rotator cuff repair where it's sutured down versus a tendon transfer repair where in essentially it's taking a healthy tendon and then replacing the damaged tendon? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, not to get too deep into the surgical procedure itself, but similarly to a standard rotator cuff repair, uh, the transfer tendon is again sutured into the bone and potentially sutured onto what's left of that um, native rotator cuff. Um, the other thing that's important for us to consider is the status of the remaining rotator cuff tendons. So, and that's information that we gained certainly from communication with our referring provider, the surgeon. Um, but you know, the, I think that I would progress things as a clinician 
more conservatively and almost as if using the same principles um, in a rotator cuff tear patient, if I knew that some or any of those other tendons in that patient um, were not, you know, clean and healthy. Now, if that was the case to a certain degree, they would certainly repair those while they were in there as well. Um, but uh, there is potential that those tendons aren't as healthy and robust as now the transfer tendon. And so that's something that's really important for us to know. In that case, um, I would use some of the same principles as a rotator cuff repair, meaning less cyclical loading, longer hold times, et cetera. And you bring up an excellent point as to talking with that surgeon, talking with the referring provider about what they saw in surgery, because the MRI is only going to tell you so much about the intactness of those rotator cuff muscles. Um, but then as well, um, the, the surgeon's also going to give you a gauge of how they felt that, um, that repair went and how confident they felt in that. Um, when we kind of look at these tendon transfers, again, we could go on and on for, for hours, but as we look to wrap up here, what are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen in the physical therapy management um, with, with these procedures and some things that we as a profession have kind of struggled with, if that, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, in a unique and kind of novel procedure like this, as a therapist, if it's something that you're not seeing frequently, um, that makes it harder to kind of understand and appreciate all of the nuances that go into it. You know, we're fortunate at Mayo Clinic to work in an interdisciplinary setting where we're literally on the same floor um, as the surgeons. And so we can have these conversations so easily and face to face. I think that the, the way hands down that I've learned the most about this procedure and about rehabilitation with this procedure is speaking with the surgeon directly. And so having that opportunity um, is just so, so valuable. Um, you know, I think a few of the other things from a therapist side exclusively that are important to consider um, when you're working with these patients are having a really good understanding of the tissues involved um, and how to protect them, and also what motions stress those tissues. So we go back to kind of our basics of anatomy, um, attachment sites, and understanding those things, and that will influence the position that we put patients in, the movements that we have them do, etc. Also, and we've already touched on this, but really appreciating the patient's preoperative status, uh, understanding what they've gone through before, but also the function of their other rotator cuff muscles. Um, we also know that their preoperative range of motion measures will help to better define what they should expect postoperatively. So in other words, someone that's really limited preoperatively, um, their expectations postoperatively would be different than somebody with greater range of motion going into surgery. So really gaining a clear understanding of that. Um, and then I think one other really important thing, and this is certainly not exclusive to this procedure, but is creating matched expectations and identifying your patient specific goals. And those two things go hand in hand, you know, talking about all the things that we've talked about in terms of expectations for this specific procedure, but then putting that in alignment with what the patient's goals are. 
That is a, a lot of knowledge bombs just dropped right there, Allison. And I appreciate that. I'm going to have to definitely listen back to that last two minutes and just kind of unpack all that knowledge that you kind of just put forth. And I agree. I think ultimately what it boils down to is those patient expectations and their goals, because for all they care, they just need enough range of motion to do their hair. And if we focus solely on the range of motion and we lose sight of them having to have the ability to do their hair, um, yes, they go hand in hand, but tying it back to a functional goal that the patient wants to take out of the surgery as well as rehab, I think is vastly important. So with all of those, with all that in mind, um, oftentimes I'll kind of end the podcast with just kind of a, a question about some things that over the years of you working with these procedures, what have you learned to continue um, improving your management of these patients? And if it's something that you've already previously mentioned, um, feel free to let me know with that as well. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm constantly reminded and where I grow the most um, as a clinician is in my conversations with our interdisciplinary team. Um, we are so fortunate where we are at Mayo Clinic to have such a wonderful group of orthopedic surgeons who are so open and willing to have those discussions. I learn so much from each of those discussions, truly, um, you know, broadly about the procedure, but then also they can provide such insight into the patient specifically, things that we would never see because we weren't in the operating room. And I know we did already touch on this, but I don't think that we can undervalue um, that opportunity and taking the time to have those conversations. There's just so much to be learned from their perspective um, on this. And then of course we can kind of share our knowledge, you know, us from the rehab side and hopefully really have some great discussions where we both can learn. Um, but that certainly moving forward in my career um, has certainly been the most beneficial. And I guess along with that, you know, the challenge in learning and um, improving my rehabilitation skills with this procedure is the literature is so limited. Um, even, you know, if we look broadly at the literature, even the surgical literature is limited on this procedure, but certainly the literature is very limited in regards to rehabil rehabilitation principles, outcomes, um, following rehabilitation, post-operative protocols. So there's so much room for growth there. And again, I think that that's where we can fill a little bit of that gap um, in our conversations with the interdisciplinary team. And with all of that stated too, with the lack of research, I really thank you. And I think our listeners will, will appreciate the conversation that you're able, that you just put forth, um, because I think it does provide some insights. Um, it helps us to identify some more of those questions that we have about the management of these patients. Um, and I think there's some definitely valuable clinical pearls that, um, myself, as well as all of our listeners are going to be able to take with us. Um, should we see one of these patients come into our clinic door. So um, with that um, being said, I would like to thank you again for tuning into the Shoulder Sig podcast. Again, I would like to thank Allison for taking the time to be with us today. Um, we would also like to thank the, the board of the Shoulder Sig of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy for their continued support with their podcast. You can reach out to us with feedback, ideas, or topics that you want covered via our email, shouldersigpodcast at gmail.com or by engaging with us in the Shoulder Sig Mobilize app. This podcast will be available across all the major music and podcast streaming services. We hope you can join us next time, but until then, we hope you have a great rest of your day.